This is the Veterinary Life Coach Podcast with Dr. Julie Capel, episode number 234. Hi, everyone. Before we get into this podcast with Tom Seco, on which we talk about money, so I'm excited about that. But we, before we get into that, I would love for you to do me a huge favor, a couple of favors, actually. The first one is I'm trying to get another podcast together on answering your questions about life coaching, about my practice, anything that you want to ask about. I'd love to do another question and answer segment. So if you're interested in that and you have any questions for me, please email me your questions at jacapeldvm at gmail.com. If you have comments, you can reach me there as well. Also, if you would do me a huge favor and go to Apple Podcasts or YouTube, either one or both would be amazing, and leave me a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. I'm trying to get some more reviews so we can get this podcast more exposure. Please share it with your friends, tell them all about it, and if you would like to be a guest, I'm always looking for interesting and fun guests. So if that sounds fun to you, reach out on my website And my YouTube channel is lonely. I need more subscribers. So if you can go to YouTube, my podcasts are posted there, the interview ones, um, and there's a few other videos there as well. But I'm working to grow that website on YouTube. So if you could go there and at least subscribe, and when I get new videos out, you'll get a notification. That would be amazing. So send me some questions reach out for free coaching on my website, sign up for my Wednesday Weekly Words, all the things, and follow me on social media. I would really appreciate that. And as always, thanks for listening. I love you guys. I'm so happy you're out there. Now, here is my interview with Tom Seco, and we're going to talk about money. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Veterinary Life Coach Podcast. Today, I have a wonderful return guest for you. His name is Tom Seco, and he is the co-founder of Florida Veterinary Advisors. He's a financial advisor and a business financial guide, and he is a certified exit planner and also the co-host of the Smarter Vet Podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Tom. I'm really happy to have you here. I'm so glad to be here again, and I'm honored that you brought me back on the show. I know, but you know, I love talking about money. That's one of my favorite subjects. So even though I don't I don't uh, see myself as very experienced or advanced in the money topic. I just love to listen to about it and hear about it. And it's fascinating. I agree. It's what's so incredible to me when I think of it as well, when I have conversations with people that don't have a lot of experience with money, they tend to, some people tend to shy away from it. And I think it's really just a level of uh, comfortability around the mm-hmm. conversations about it. But it seems like yeah. a lot of people enjoy talking about it when you really start dri- like diving into it, making it simple. Is really the biggest part of it. Yeah, I think there's a fear around money, right? Mm-hmm. We're all afraid of it. Afraid of afraid of making uh, making mistakes and losing money. I think that's the biggest thing. So, can you just give me a short version, since it's been a while since you've been on the podcast, so people can know who you are and what your journey's been like and how you got involved with vets? Yeah, the first place I would start with all of this. I didn't have anyone in the veterinary community that I knew when I first started working with veterinarians. And it was very intentional from where we started and how we got to where we are. And I 
the biggest mission that we're after today is we want to help at least 10% of the veterinary community become financially independent. And our most recent mission statement we created is that we provide a way of thinking to help make financial decisions easy so you can spend time doing other things. We have collectively since 2014, we have grown pretty significantly. I think we around 2019 is when we really started hitting the uh, national speaking circuit, became part of Vet Partners back in 2018. We're involved with the school network. Uh, I recently just got to speak at VMX in 2023. That was fun. Super thrill. Yeah, yeah three there. hours. That was a great conference. Yeah, it was packed. Yeah. And I have a business partner. His name is CJ Burnett. We basically tag team everything. I handle a lot of the stuff on the initial discussions with people and a lot of the beginning part of our planning. He handles a lot of the back end and constant reviews and things with our clients. And now we're up to five employees where we have an office manager, a marketing person, support people in our team. And we're actively trying to bring other advisors on our team as well that can be able to help bring our philosophies and our values out there uh, to be able to help in the same way that we are. So are these financial advisors specifically for veterinarians or are you just, as long as they know their finance, they can work with anybody? So that's actually an interesting thought. And realistically, one is no one has to have financial background to be able to become an advisor with us because a lot of it, what's fascinating, a lot of people in the industry that are working as financial advisors came from coaches or teachers or other different so industries to begin with. You could. Absolutely. Oh, I would we're love actually that. in fun. <laughs> we're in conversation with some other people in the industry, just making career changes that want to help people in a different capacity. And about 70% of our clients are veterinary. So we want to have someone that is a little bit more in tune with the community. However, we also have clients that we work with outside of the veterinary community because we have a, an umbrella company called the Next Step Planning Group, which our website will be going live shortly or whenever people are listening to this, it should be live already. And that's going to be our umbrella company. And then Florida Veterinary Advisors, our podcast and other industries that we impact are going to be a part of that brand. So we're trying to find people as CJ and I, like we're just getting so many people want our help and we're only two people. So we need to have right. more support on our back end. And we're very selective in those that we bring on our team. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you have cautious. to be because you're dealing with something really important, right? You don't want oh, something I, that's going to give bad advice and have people losing money. This has become my identity and it's hard to bring someone on my team that can easily like destroy that and tarnish my reputation and our reputation as a business. So it's like, I'm trying to be very cautious on, on who we bring and I want to make sure they have good motives. Like we're looking for people to have a good growth mindset and that want to be a part of, we are also on the flip side, we're trying to find uh, brand ambassadors that can be a part of our whole organization just to help us start spreading the word more. Right. Uh, it's something we've been thinking about for the last maybe 12 months. And we're, we're going to start pushing it out soon now that we actually have a marketing person to help us more take a, take a lean on it for us. Right. Yeah. Well, I, I think that on some level, you said you want to reach 10% of the veterinarians. I think you probably should reach a lot more than that. Well, Don't if you? you look at the entire industry as a whole, I would love to. I had to be some, I had to humble myself to a certain degree because <laughs> there's so many of us, <laughs> I, I was like, well, there's about a hundred thousand. If you just make things real simple, 10% is 10,000 people. Like that's the typical advisor can only support actively on a support measure between 250 to 500 people. So for me to actively provide the level of service and the quality we're trying to do for people out there, 
we have to have a whole army to do it. So I would love to become one of the predominant financial voices out there in the vet community to where people like, Hey, I need financial guidance or I need education or resources. Like there's financial entertainers that exist, but we want to actually be the licensed people that are providing solid and reputable information for people that you can either learn on your own. Uh, you can listen to our podcast, you can go to our courses. We're actually in the process of releasing uh, four master classes. And one's going to be 90 minutes. And then we have three that are 60 and we're walking through certain subjects, just to the thought process and how people approach finances. Uh, so we're always trying to figure out new ways to just provide education. And I, I will say ultimately at the end of the day, not everyone is going to be a Florida veterinary advisor's client. It just, everyone, people have different mentalities and then right. people are in different spots. Yeah. Well, so kind of springboarding off of that, let's, let's talk about what's going on in the economy right now, because I think that's a big concern for all of us. You know, things are more expensive and, you know, veterinary medicine is getting um, really pressured by the fact that we don't have enough veterinarians. And so kind of give me your overview on what you think is happening right now. And I guess what we can do about it. So on the side of doing about it, Part of that's out of my, our, my hands, your hands, a lot of people's hands to a certain <laughs> degree. And, and I can give my thoughts around it for sure. And I really believe what's caused a lot of the shortage that we're having today is these consolidator or buying groups that came in. And it's not because all of a sudden people had more pets than this, that, and the other. It's really is the factor of like people do. I, I was seeing some statistics from uh, Matt Saloy. He works with uh, VMG now. He actually was with the AVMA for a while as an, the economist. Mm -hmm. And I was at one of his presentations recently, and he was showing about the amount of pets and people that were actually coming in through COVID and actually nothing had changed. Like actually people brought in fewer pets during COVID compared to the trend over time, okay. which was really interesting when you think about it. It's not uh, what it but felt the, like in practice. It's not what it felt like. Mm -hmm. And when you really think of it, though, all of these groups that are coming in, they're buying so many of them. And then ultimately, their idea is they buy them at a very premium dollar. Eventually, they're going to roll them up. Someone else is going to buy them, hopefully, or they're going to go public. But in the process of doing that, they need to figure out how to squeeze more revenue out of these practices. So the only way to do it is either got to raise prices, cut costs, or get more veterinarians and more people to work. So the more de more demand that they're trying to create, it's creating a lot of the shortfall that I personally believe, believe is happening out there, which I, as of right now, I believe there's 3,500 shortage positions of veterinarians, about 3,500 vet tech positions that are open. And the veterinary shortage by 2030 is supposed to grow to about 15,000. Wow. So I've heard that there's been some schools getting accredited. They're trying to figure out how to increase that, but there's only about 4,000 vet students graduating every year going into vet med. Right. But then there's about an equal amount people are retiring right now because of the boomer generation. Right, right. So, and, and some people are even getting out, like younger mm -hmm. people that could have another 10 or 20 years in the in the industry and they're getting out because they just don't want to deal with it. Of Which course. That's what I'm I'm working against. I, I want to keep people in if I can, because I think <laughs> it's such a great career. Well, I mean, think of it too. I mean, if you're a younger person and your old MO is like, you're looking for financial independence and you're not really... In, about practicing vet med, which there are people in vet med, veterinary medicine, you would hope that they would want to do vet med, but people do get tired, want to change careers. And right. um, I have many conversations with people in their thirties and forties, and they're ready to sell. And when they're seeing these buying groups offering 10, 15, 20 times their net income, that's, 
that's sick money. I mean, that's a lot of money you're putting on the table there. So it's like, now they're making this question, do I continue on with the risk of the business or do I take the cash and go do something else? (laughs) Right. So what do you tell them? Is it, is it situation specific? Well, a lot of people that I've noticed that are wanting to sell, it's because they are just, they're tired of having to deal with the day-to-day grind of, and most of the time it's a staff, I think is the biggest part of it all. Mm-hmm. Uh, I personally struggle with it with new team members, but when you are the one that like, let's say you're a single veterinarian and you don't have a certain structure in place, like a practice manager and a processes and systems, and there isn't a good culture created in there, the demand gets put on you as the owner. And it seems like it's total chaos all the time right. to where like, the biggest thing that people want to do is they either want to withdraw or they want to get out. So my idea with people, even when they're positioned to sell, I'm like, Hey, you know, your practice is doing, let's just say for instance, a million dollar practice doing 300,000 in profits, just throwing a number out here. But if you're running really good, you could be 250, 300,000 in profits. And it's like, if you work over the course of the next 10 years, you're going to, you're going to net, you're going to gross roughly $3 million in profits from this business maybe your business right now could be worth between, you know, 1.5 to $3 million, but you're basically cashing out, getting this money. And then you're giving up $3 million on the back end, which could potentially grow if your business grows. Right. So my idea to them is like, well, what's really the motive? Like, what are you really concerned about? And what's the big push to try to get out? And I will say, once we actually jump in there and start talking with them, some of them just need to be talked off the ledge. They really just need to say yeah. like, <laughs> they need a coach. They need a, yeah. a life coach it's and like, a financial coach. That's why that's we're it. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, it's once you start talking them off the ledge and they start realizing they're like, it's really not that bad. I need to refocus. Uh, my saying, I love to say with people all the time is how do you eat a six foot sub? One bite at a time. One bite at a time. Yeah. So I was actually on a call with someone earlier today and they're just like, asking me this and asking me that and ask me this. And like, there's so many questions. They're like, I want to do this. I want to do that. And I'm like, look, you're trying to do so much stuff right now. There's constipation. Like we got to slow down here. <laughs> pick one, prioritize. Let's prioritize. Let's yeah. take it in strides. Let's make things, if it's urgent, let's handle it. If it's not urgent, but it's important, let's then start tackling it. But we need to start doing these things in a, in a process, not this kind of fire drill that we're doing right now. Right, right. Some of that's personality driven, right? Some of us are a little all over the place when it comes to personality. And some of us are, you know, process people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm, I'm super process. I'm, I'm probably one of the people you call type A and yeah, everything has to that. be. <laughs> but, but that's what you want in somebody that's going to tell you what to do with money, right? You don't want somebody that doesn't know the details and doesn't mm-hmm. care. You know, that's, that's right. part of my problem is sometimes I'm like, I care about making the money, but I don't, the details sometimes get away from me until I'm running my business. And then I kind of know what, what to do. Right. It's, it's prioritizing that I think. Absolutely. Yeah. So let's talk about budgets and budgeting Mm -hmm. because that's always a, that's something for people that aren't real process driven is how do you do it? Where does the money go? What are we supposed to do? What's important right now in this, you know, economy that we're in. And I know the economy is always changing, right? So it probably it's probably the same answer to depend, irregardless of what's going on in the in the country. Well, over COVID, deposits in banks skyrocketed. 
So the amount of money that's yeah. been sitting in banks, and I'm, I'm sure you've seen recently with some of these bank discussions that are going on where, you know, not smart financial moves that these institutions made caused them to cause scare and concern. But then you also have different websites out there that are saying, oh, go take out all of your money and go do all of these things, which are, you know, back in the 30s and 40s when, when media wasn't something that was super big out there. Uh, people wouldn't be out there saying, hey, you got to go take all your money out of the bank. And they wouldn't have to worry about bank runs like right. you have today. Right. And people have, have hoarded a lot of cash. But I think what's happened is that the money is now being utilized for things that are, let, let's say in my world, I'm always looking, how to become financially independent or what we call paycheck independent. And most of the decisions people are making is more of short-sighted and is more short-term decisions for lifestyle things than it is for their longer-term plan. And, you know, from a budgeting standpoint, the way I always try to phase, like, look at this is two different categories, budgeting versus spending plans. So when you budget- Okay, so that's different. Yeah, it's, it's different really, Well, think it's the same thing. It's just the psychology behind how you do it. Okay. All right. Explain. So let's say that you are a person that every dollar that you get, Julie, burns a hole in your pocket. Mm -hmm. Okay. Enemy. Money comes in, you spend it like it doesn't, like it's, it's water, basically. Right. The budget work really comes into play. Like I love the envelope system. There's different ways of doing it. But really what I've seen from a budget, it's like you set limits. The limit is what it is. You don't change it. And once you hit the limit, you're done. Yeah, you reset like again the next month. Correct. You're, you're putting... I like to think of it, you're putting a straight jacket on yourself, basically. Mm -hmm. I hate it. I hate budgets. But if you're a person that doesn't like know budgets? where to... <laughs> I think if you budget in the right way, you might love it. You can love it. And budgeting, when it comes to it, like if you are struggling saying, hey, I money just comes and goes, the envelope system is great because you can really limit yourself. Like you're taking cash out and you're throwing money into an envelope. Yeah, there's something magic Spend about cash, right? It's way harder to let go of. Yeah. We yeah. actually, we were talking, we used to talk about that all the time and it's really become like a mute subject. It seems like, because every time my wife always asked me, she's like, do you have, do you have cash? And I'm like, no, do they take Apple pay? I'm like, I don't, I have no cash. Yeah. Uh, me, me being a finance guy, cash or doing it on a card feels the same to me. Cause like, I see it's it more pragmatically. Yeah. Yeah. I see it more logically and I see numbers. I don't see whatever tender it's in. It doesn't matter, doesn't matter. at the end of the okay. day. So that's personality uh, driven in a way. It is, but I will say for the longest time, I mean, people used to always pay in cash. Mm -hmm. So think about it when credit cards became sort of more of a mainstream thing. What happened is that, well, if I give up cash, well, now that, that hundred dollars that I just gave over is gone. Like it's right. not coming back. Right. Credit card, you charge it on a credit card, which is what most people do. I'll worry about it later. <laughs> yeah, I don't think about it. That's what gets you it. into trouble sometimes, right? <laughs> of course. Yeah. Like I'm a very big proponent of like, I believe that people should use a credit card for their transactions. I really think that no one should use a debit card due to the pure fact of fraud and easily people being able to take your money. Because when you use a credit card, there's 0% liability to you, fraud protection, right? all of that stuff. Plus you get points, you get extra bonus for it. Mm -hmm. We're going to get caught with your pants down Think of it like, hey, I charged it on a credit card, but I didn't have the money there. That's the problem. So right. I've created this habit of mine where every Friday, I actually learned it from CJ, uh, my business partner, that every Friday, whatever my credit card balance is, I pay it off. Like oh. it's just, it's, it's routine to me. Mm -hmm. People used to be like, 
Well, because like people will be like, well, I got to keep a balance because it helps my credit, which is totally false. Like you utilize your credit. It helps, you know, it helps your credit. Right. Uh, but I've just noticed that if you paid off weekly, this thing is less. Huh. So if every month I have to send five grand to my credit card versus sending $1,500 a week, there's a whole different perception that we have to it. Well, and but if you, you also overspend need to make sure one week, then you can like go, oh crap, what did I do this week? And then you, you can back off. That's genius. Yeah. I don't remember you saying that before. I love that you said this. Just <laughs> I'm like, oh, I should try that. You should. I think everyone should surprised do it. at the end of the month. Right. When you're like, oh, how did I spend so much money this month? Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. No, it was, it was, I was totaling up someone's, uh, their, their spending the other day. Cause I was, I'll talk a little bit more about a spending plan in a second, but I was totaling up their spending because most of the time I ask like, how much money do you spend per month? Like when we're working with people and they're like, I don't know. I really, I really couldn't start. I think four grand, five grand. And then we start totaling it up. It's actually seven grand. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I know it's so easy. So like, I didn't realize. Yeah. You mm -hmm. don't, you don't, especially so when like, you have a good job and you have good money coming in. Right. That's what, I think that's when you, you don't, you don't realize because you're like, well, the money's coming in and, but you're spending it just as fast as it's coming in. It's like a boat boat with a hole in it. You're bailing it out agree. as fast as it's coming in. Well, there's, there's actually a study that I've seen before. It's called the happiness study. And it actually has been tested over and over and over where there's a certain level of income that we should have to create stability. But then there is a level to where it's like, it provides us the ability to have flexibility in our life. Right. Then anything beyond that is considered luxury. And then anything beyond a certain level of luxury becomes an excess. And I believe the number from the last time I checked it, they'd revised it was 75 grand and they bumped it to 85,000. And that was for a household. For happiness. So for happiness. Okay. 85. So you're able to, you're able to pay for your food. You can go out to eat. Your bills are paid, everything else. You're saving some money. Then beyond that, that's when the fancy cars start getting pulled in. That's when all the trips start happening. That's when I don't really pay too much attention to what I'm making. So when you think of it, like, a veterinarian graduating today is making 100, 120. I see emergency vets like making 150, $180,000 a year. Well, and the offers keep going up. The people that I talk yes. to, it's like, they'll tell me one week they got offered this. And then I'll talk to another one. They're like, well, I got offered this and I got offered this. And I was like, oh, it's going up so fast. Yes. Well, it's like, like I was, I was talking to someone the other, other day doing emergency. emergency. It's crazy vet? just the yeah, like their their production is actually double of what their salary is. Like, how? Like, how is it even possible? But it's like now they have all of this financial means, and of course, like there's a saying, "More money, more problems." Like, yeah. you make more money, your your life is cared for. You don't really think about it much anymore. Right. So, not being a finance guy or a nerd like myself, most people are just going to do their thing. They spend money. They put money in different places. They're not worried about how they're going to cover their expenses and their bills because they got plenty of money and, you know, the cycle continues over and over. So when it comes to the, you know, the other mindset here is like what we call the spending plan. I think this is a good part to throw in here. Yeah. Tell me is, about that. We actually have a concept that we use with people of where we want to, instead of pushing our savings in spots and saying, Hey, we want to save X amount per month in, in money. Like our, your goal, everyone's goal should be doing 20% of their gross income. So if you make a hundred grand, you should be saving at least $20,000 a year. That should be your goal. If you can do more, it just means you're going to become financially independent quicker. 
Where you put that money is a whole nother conversation with, it, with itself. But what happens is that people usually try to pay themselves and save after the fact, after expenses, after everything else happens. The 401k is very attractive for a lot of people because they put money into it, payroll deducted, don't even have to think about it. But if you're making 200 grand a year, you're not going to be able to save enough into a 401k. It's just not possible. Right. So like, what do you do instead? So the way we do it is we flip it. Instead of having all their money get dumped into their checking account, we establish a whole separate account that's meant to be, I call it the Grand Central Station. Okay. Money comes in, money is supposed to go out. And the whole goal here is that we want to limit our lifestyle to where we're not, you know, we're not, let's say the word poor, like you're not supposed to like starve yourself. Right. At the end of the day, though, we're trying to keep your lifestyle at a certain level and let it grow over time as you make more money. But by able to do that and you capture your money in one account, it really allows for you to maximize the savings that you're doing. So we've found that like, if you can be able to boil it down of like, Hey, I make X amount of dollars. It all gets dumped in here. I get pay raises. I get production bonuses. I get all of these different things, but I keep paying myself X per month. All the extra excess is going to accumulate in that account. And then by the time you know it, it's like, okay, now what do I do with this? I've seen people we've done this with, they went from saving seven, 8% of their income to saving 25, 30% of their income, like overnight. Just because it was taken out of their decision-making. Correct. It, it the got taken thing to- is mental, right? It's like, if it's yeah. like eating, you're going to overspend or overeat. But if somebody takes that out of your hands, then it's easier to control. Correct. And it's not even just taking it out of your hands. It's like you create a, a distinct separation. So like, think of it like a retirement account or 401k, like why don't people usually touch their 401k? I don't touch it because it's supposed to be for retirement, you know, your right. air quotes, retirement. Okay. Right. I put it in there. If I touch it before 59 and a half, I'm paying penalties, I'm paying taxes, yada, yada, yada. Right. So like, if I save money in there, it's like, it's forcing me to do something and it takes it out of my way. And I'm not like, my mindset's already, I don't want to touch it. Right. But when you have money actively just getting dumped in front of you, it's very easy to just, oh, I have it. So I, you look at I all this money. This. Yes. Yeah. So like, and when we always look at the accounts, like the account shouldn't be open where your checking and savings account is. It should be at a completely different institution to create a degree of separation. Think of it like if you go shopping and you know you're going to be a bad spender when you go to the mall, okay? You leave your credit card in the car and your wallet or whatever it is, everything you have, whatever it is that you have for payment method. And then you go into the store. And if you really, really, really want it that bad, you will go back out to your car to go get your payment. <laughs> yeah, but you'd have to really want it to do that. Yes, yeah. it gets you to second, it gets you to second think about what you're doing. So like right. when you can establish it like that, that right there to a certain degree is like completely eliminating budgeting and spending plans. But if you're having a hard time where every dollar seems like it's being accounted for, there is a spreadsheet that we provide people where the goal is that you will walk down and you'll start writing out, okay, what I think I spend in each category. So a spending plan, we want to visually be able to put numbers in of what we think we're doing. And then the spreadsheet we have, then we want to be able to see the actual results. So like right now we're going into April. So like if April was the key, it's like, okay, we want to see over the next three months, if I put $500 for eating out, is $500 really the number that I'm doing? Is it really three? Is it really eight? And then that way you can be able to understand and become more aware of it and then be able to make adjustments or at the same time, be able to take money from other categories. So if you realize that like my shopping allocation is $150 for the month and I've only spent $25, 
I've got $125 left over that I could reallocate to eat out if that's really what I want to do this month. Right. So the spending plan is more of like, you're, you're giving yourself permission, but you're trying to stay within reason. And I will say for some people, I use a spending plan all the time. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, it allows for me to shift and pivot along the way. Um, I, I personally try to save a good amount of my money because then it's like I live off a certain amount and then I save the rest. So then I'm able to understand, okay, I've hit a certain threshold this month and I'm here. Is there any wiggle room anywhere else? Or do we need to like slow down? Like, do we need to stop what we're doing? Take a break from eating out or Mm -hmm. whatever it is. I have this conversation very regular with my wife around eating out because I'm like, (laughs) okay, let's look back at last month. Do you have any idea how much we spent in eating out last month? And she's like, no. And I'm like, uh, we spent $800 last month eating out. I'm like, that's kind of insane when you really think of it. She's like, yeah, you should probably slow down. And then she starts being like, okay, well, let me cook food. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Buy another car. So then it's like even groceries today are just getting insane. Like every conversation I have with people, it's like my grocery bill is like so much. And I'm like, yeah. Yeah, it's double what it was in the last couple of years, right? It's crazy. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, that's cool. I love that. I like the account idea. So that account, not to get too deep into the nitty gritty, and maybe you can't answer this question, is that spending account, is it mm-hmm. just like a like a low interest, just sitting there doing nothing account, and then you move it? Or like what what are you doing with that money while you're waiting to figure out what you're you're saving it, I guess, right? Yeah. So the what we were where we would start is depending on how much this is my rule of thumb. So whoever wants to take it or not. Uh, we, we try to create some parameters of what you should be doing with the account. And the first goal should be, hey, how much money should I keep in the wealth coordination account is what we call it. It's the account that you're using as your grand central station. Okay. And the number that I usually base it off is how much money you need each per month sent to you. So if it's $7,000 you need every month for your lifestyle, then $7,000 should be the lingering balance in the account just for buffer. Like a backup, so like, kind of a backup plan in case something happens. Yeah. So like in the event you making sure your paychecks are going to you when you need them. And then also if you're starting to redistribute funds to other spots, you're not causing a shortfall for yourself. From a savings perspective, an emergency fund, I usually look at at least three times, whatever that number is that they're getting sent every month. So if it's 7,000, you'd want 21 grand in an emergency fund. The goal should be though, to get at least one year of your gross income in accessible dollars. So when we look at one times your income, so if you're making 100,000, you should be having a target between your emergency fund and other funds that are available to you without penalties should be up to at least one times your gross income. That should be the target. From there, as the money accumulates, if we have a target set at 7,000 in the wealth coordination account, once it hits 7,000, now it's a matter of like, okay, how much extra money per month is building in here? Can we actively start contributing to different buckets And at the same time, as bonuses come through and everything else, it's going to cause the target to get blown through the roof. Right. So like we might be not 20,000. It's like we have what we call $13,000 of dead cash that's just sitting there. And it's like, okay, do we put that into our lifestyle? Do we put some of it? Do we put it all into your plan? What do we do with this? So it really allows for us to become super aware of what's happening. And each person, depending on their risk tolerance and where they're at in their phase of life is really going to be depending on where they should be putting funds. Uh, along the way. So like some of, if you're going to do a 401k, of course it would keep getting pulled out of your paycheck, but there are other alternative things that you could put money into uh, that you'd start looking at from a planning perspective. Okay. So how does your, um, assuming that a lot of people out there that are listening to us have student loan debt, 
-hmm. How does that factor into all of this? Like, what if you have a huge student loan debt that you're trying to pay off? And I know I, well, I shouldn't say no. Didn't during COVID they, they make it so people didn't have to pay on their student loans? Like, was that an mm -hmm. issue? It's still, it's still in effect today. So and are you recommending that people do that, just not pay? Or are, they, are you recommending that they continue to pay on it, I guess? So the Biden administration had actually approved doing a $10,000 forgiveness for a certain amount of income that people made. They were eligible right. for it. But then uh, other states had found that unconstitutional, which then was going to the Supreme Court which I think that their meeting is in June or July of 2023. Mm -hmm. And until then, until there's some further notice, there's still payment pauses and interest rate pauses until then. Uh, what I will say when it comes to income and repaying loans, once you get in loans about one and a half to two times the amount of money you're making, I hate to be the person to say this, but ultimately at the end of the day, the ability for you to repay your loans and find balance in your financial life is basically impossible. Like in just all frankness here, and I hate to be the one to say it, but it really, it just, it is what it is when you do the math, it just doesn't work. Right. And what happens is like for anyone who is in a circumstance to where they are in that position, this is where the emphasis on savings should become even more of a priority. So like, even if you are a person that will, let's say you're leaning on income-based forgiveness at some point or not, uh, the forgiveness program because of in income-based repayment or the payee program, uh, I, God forbid, I hope it does happen for a lot of people that are out there relying on yeah, it. Yeah, a lot of people are and using if, it. And if it doesn't happen, well, if you spend a bunch of your time trying to save money and you minimize your loan payments and you're able to just save, 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 ultimately, even if you have to keep paying that loan payment throughout retirement, let's just say, you're still gonna have enough money you've accumulated over time to provide you with income. Because that's the biggest concern here. Like if I have loans and I have to pay them, do I have the financial means and it's not going to put me like in a position where I'm eating ramen noodles and peanut butter and jellies every day. Right. So the more that you can save in that perspective, then absolutely. But if, if you do, if your life changes and you get in a different position to where you know, your income goes up because you're in a different role, maybe you become a practice owner and you have more cash flow that's available. I would always encourage people to start repaying as best as you can, but also at the same notion, balance 20% savings. So when we really look at it, the biggest factor that I look at with anything from a planning, there's one thing we cannot get back. And that one thing is time. So for anyone who devotes the next 10 years of their life aggressively paying off student loans and they're hardly saving any money, one, there is no absolute certainty that you're going to be able to make up 10 years of savings once your right. loans are done. And at the same notion, there's no guarantee your loans are going to get repaid in that 10 years because life does happen. So the best that anyone could do right now is being able to build more cash and then reevaluate every six, 12 months and be like, well, I've accumulated this. Do I put it towards my loan or do I put it towards my paycheck independence? Which one is more important to me? And, you know, depending on the, the spectrum, like if you are a two times income person or higher, or if you're one and a half or lower, it really, of course, it's person by person that you'd be working with. But my, my MO at the end of the day is control. How do I keep control in my situation? And the less control that I have by paying extra, like I find people that are like, literally they're, they're they have fumes in their checking account. Like it is, it is real bad, the amount of money that they have. And I'm like, wow, you make X amount of dollars, but you have nothing. Yeah. Right like now. where is it all? 
And you can't blame it on the student loans by all means, because the government, like if you're on an income based repayment, they're probably requiring you to pay 600 to maybe a grand a month in loan repayments. And there's still extra money there. Right. So like now it's a real time to like check yourself and be like, is my rent too high? Am I paying for too much of a car? Am I eating out too much? Am I doing this? So now it's like really coming down to like, what are my habits that I'm creating or have created? And how do I kind of break the bone and reset it again? Uh, because that's where the, the true financial success is going to come from, because you can't really blame it on the circumstances of the loans, which I hear it so often, like it's the loans, it's the loans, it's the loans, but they have programs in place to help with the, where you don't become in a very hard position cash flow wise. Uh, but there are people that I know that I've had in conversation where they have other responsibilities and family members, but it's very rare that I've, I've encountered that. Right. Okay. So I just, I guess I'm, I'm worried about the profession from the standpoint that there is such a high, you know, debt ratio to income. Although I really think in the last probably year or two, the incomes have gone up so high that I think mm -hmm. on some level that's going to help a lot of us, right? Get those. Loans it should. I, I honestly think it will. And partly though, the people who are going to school, if there's anyone listening to this that is a student, I would highly encourage you to just take what is absolutely needed to kind of defer okay. the vacations or, you know, the nice cars and everything right now, because you do have the responsibility to pay something towards these loans at some point or another. Right. And be as lean as you possibly can, eat the ramen noodles and eat the peanut butter and jelly to minimize the amount of financial pain that you're going to feel from any loans that you're going to take. And then, you know, at the end of the day, when you get out of school and you start making money, like I, I would hundred percent, the first place I would start is saving because saving is like, let's say you're going to save a grand a month today, but you're not good. You're going to defer that for 10 years. And now all of a sudden you're like, well, I'm going to save now a grand, but you're, you're 10 years behind plus all right. of the growth off of your assets and everything else. So you're probably gonna have to save two grand a month right. to catch up, maybe $2,500 a month to catch up. But then what other also responsibilities do you have in your life? Now you might have a new house, the car, kids, other responsibilities, things right. that you want to work towards. So like by focusing so much attention on one thing and making it like, I would hundred percent prioritize savings. And if, if debt is like, I think sometimes, again, I think people just need to be talked off the ledge of like, look, I understand debt is programmed in our brains to be bad, like right. debt, bad, red. Right. <laughs> except except for in... I would argue with you from the standpoint of, yeah, debt, we are told debt is bad, debt is bad, debt is bad. And, and on one hand, I agree with that. But I also think that when you're buying a house or when you're buying your veterinary hospital, like I don't know that anybody could ever save up enough money to buy a vet hospital. I couldn't when I bought mine, I had to go into debt and, and that's, and I got rid of it. Like I worked hard and got rid of it, but I think, I think sometimes I hate to call it good debt and bad debt, but maybe there is some of that. There is. Could we I have would... gotten through vet school without some debt? You know, I don't know anyone. I couldn't. I had to have debt to get through well, school. You answered that question right now. What causes debt in the first place? Debt is caused because we didn't have the financial means to pay it with other sources. So we had to find an alternative way, which that's where student loans, yeah. credit cards, mortgages, auto loans, all of these things come into play. Right. The two biggest problems though, too, though, is that, you know, I get approved for a house 
And you, most mortgage people will prove you for up to 35% of your gross income for a house payment. Doesn't mean you can afford it. Like yeah, there's a difference between much. affordability and approval. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Or or a car, like maybe you're obsessed with luxury cars. For instance, I'm obsessed with luxury cars. Um, Are you? I just got my first electric car recently. Oh, and, cool. Uh, and uh, it's one of those things that like, if you have the financial means to do it and you can build it in your lifestyle, it's one thing. But if you're going out there and you're leasing the Range Rover for a grand a month, you might want to take yourself step back and be like, yeah, is this really part of my priorities right now that I should be looking at? Or are there other things that I want to be focusing on? And I think sometimes people just need a little bit of a, you know, debt, debt is a good thing to use when it's used in the right way. And cool. I'm a big proponent, like, People ask me all the time, someone has student loans the other day, I was talking with them. They're like, well, I took out money from my house because the rate was lower and I was going to take that money and wipe out my student loans. Mm. And she's like, but we went into this pre um, no payment for a while. And you know, her home loan was at like 2.7% versus her student loans at 6.5. And she could spread it out over 30 years if she wanted to. I was like, it sounds like a genius move. But then when I look at the amount of accessibility of cash she has, if she took all the money that she has in cash and paid off her loan, she has five grand in her account. Right. In my mind, that's not a smart that's move risky. for you to be making. No, money. that's very risky. So it's like one of those things like with debt, it's always good to be able to leverage someone else's money, but doing it in a very reasonable way. <laughs> so you can keep control of your own stuff and do other things with it. That's how right. most people from a, a financial savvy standpoint or business owners do it. So. Yeah. It's just watching where it's going and knowing where it's going, huh? Yep. So talk to me about um, like house buying and real estate and stuff like that. What do we need to know about that? Because two things that at I, some point everybody's going to, I would assume everybody wants to buy a house, right? Absolutely. These are my two beliefs towards it and people can take it or leave wow. it. Everything, everyone's circumstances are different. If you have to put down more than 5% to buy a house, it's, you shouldn't probably be doing it realistically. Down, especially okay. To, say that again, put down five. Put down more than 5% of- As a down payment. Oh, as a down payment. Okay. Yeah, because you have closing costs. You have all these other things that come into right. play. All if right. you are financially independent and you have a certain amount of assets and wealth that you've accumulated, we can re-talk about that at another point. Mm -hmm. Most people I approach, if you have to put more than 5% down as a down payment, like I would probably reconsider your motives on that because it's like you're probably extending yourself more than you should be. It means that you're buying too much of a house. Uh, but then also on the other side, what my also belief is in our philosophy that we have from a planning is that your principal and interest payment, which does not include private mortgage insurance, they call it PMI, right. um, insurances, taxes, and all that other stuff, just principal and interest should not be more than 15% of your gross income. Okay. And so as long you as you can, that? so you have enough to save. It's, I, I like to call it to where you're not house poor. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Because people usually like, again, if you move in a community like mine, I have a CDD, it's called a community development district in Florida. Mm -hmm. And we have, a, it's, it's kind of like an HOA. Right. And every month we have to pay okay. a certain amount to maintain the community we're in. Right. Uh, I don't account for that as part of that 15%. That is purely coming out of my lifestyle now to okay. have the house. It's part of the being in this house. It's part of my lifestyle now to be here. So like, electricity and water and pest control and all of these Out of things. That are, bucket. Yes. So, so what else, I mean, is there more or is that it? It's like 15% is your payment. And then you say, go for it. 15%, you put 5% down. 
usually at most, unless again, if you have one times your gross income and accessible funds, we can reconsider that. But a lot of times I see people trying to do 20% because they're trying to avoid like private mortgage insurance. Mm. And really where the zinger is for a lot of people is if your credit's bad, the private mortgage insurance is probably going to be high uh, because they're going to base it off of your credit worthiness. Right. But if your credit is decent, your PMI is really not that much for the amount of cash you're giving up and the opportunity you'd be losing by using that cash for other purposes, the amount of time to recover it, the recovery time period is just, it's not worth it. Okay. From, and you should just be able to cash flow it and pay it out of your income over time. Okay. All right. So I'm going to jump subjects on you because we, I think mm -hmm. we mentioned this before we actually started recording, but we talked a little bit about the culture in your practice and mm -hmm. how to manage that or what the problem is with that right now and what's happening with the veterinary shortage, that whole big piece of pie. Maybe yes. we can do a little bit on that before we before we're done. What do you, what's your take on all of that that's going on in that department right now? Is that too big well, I will of a say, broad question? <laughs> Doesn't make sense. It, I can answer it in, in, in a couple of different ways here. One vet practices, and I've, I've been reconfirmed this by a lot of other people in the industry. Many of the practice owners that have practices do not have a culture to begin with. Their mm -hmm. culture is we just show up and we just, we're just here. We work, we do what we do. Each owner might have certain personalities and things that they bring, but there is no outlining of When I say culture, there is no clear transparency of saying, okay, these are our values. This is our philosophy. This is what we are about. Mm -hmm. This is what our mission is as a practice. And there are a bunch of practices that we run into where they, when you start asking them in these things, it's like, I, I always like to ask a practice owner of like, they're looking for talent. I mean, like, what makes your practice a destination practice for people to want to work at? Like what makes them want to come here? Well, we have a 401k or we have these different, I'm like, but what makes people want to work here? Right. Like in our world, like we have, you know, in my business and CJ's business, like we, we actually have a, a thing that we're trying to communicate to our team of what we want for them, what we're trying to accomplish for our clients. What are, you know, our principles when it comes to work, we call it opera. I actually got these really cool carved out signs that we had recently made. They're called opera. That's and awesome. opera means it's take ownership, be proactive, be early, get results and actively communicate. And we created a philosophy and vision video ourselves. We played at every corporate meeting that we go into and it's, we want to instill a certain persona throughout the entire company. And then also the same notion, we're trying to reward people for their individual successes that they're having in the business. It's not just, Hey, the business did really well this month. I see this all the time with vet practices where it's, they did well, everyone gets a random bonus based off of your position. Yeah. Christmas time rolls not around. Here's a Christmas bonus. Uh, but then also at the same time, if you have really key and critical people in your business, it's also like, what are you really doing to tie those people down? Right. And we usually, in my world call it a golden handcuff. It's like, how are you making it to where, they're here and they're we not going to leave. leave. Yeah. And there are yeah. ways you can pick select people in your practice to be able to tie them down because you're providing some kind of a benefit after a time period to them. And, you know, the way we call it is like a retention bonus or a non-qualified compensation program. They're commonly called a 409A in um, law is 409A plans. And really being able to hone in on like, who are those key people? 
So like, you know, there's one, what is his name? Dr. Young, I think his name is. He's based out of Atlanta. And I got to listen to him a few weeks ago and I was very impressed. He went from not having a practice six years ago to now having a pra two practices that are grossing over $7 million a year combined. And like he has 10 veterinarians and he doesn't even work there anymore. And he created these, like he talked about like the five senses, like what do people experience when they come in here from the five sense of taste and touch and feel and smell and uh, you know, what do they see? And, you know, he really tried to create this mission and vision for his business and it's thriving right now because right. of it. Yeah. People are doing phenomenal. And I think that's where, and I hear all the time with practice owners are just like, well, I don't have time. I'm busy. I'm this or that. And I'm like, I get it. Everyone's busy. Everyone has a lot going on, but anything that is ultra important, you'll make time for it. Like in the way you make time for it, you look at your calendar and you block it out. Well, and if you need to, oh, sorry. If you have an actual mission and vision, then that's going to drive that time. Like you're going to spend that time getting that going, but then you're going to get so much more time back on the back end, I would imagine, because you're not losing people and rehiring. And like there's so many things that if you don't have a good culture, that you're going to lose. Absolutely. Like, and and, and when you can, that is bad. Well, it's like when you can create that culture, or even if you can again, how do you replicate your time? You replicate your time by buying other people's time. Right. So if your time is more well spent in doing one particular thing in your business, you need to figure out how do you get someone else to handle the other parts of it? And this might require, you know, you're going to have to do some of the dirty work. You're going to have to get in the weeds and on your hands and knees and start picking the weeds. At the end of the day, though, there should be, if you need guidance because you feel stuck or you don't know how to do things, this is where really leaning on people, even like yourself, Julie, it's like, I need someone to support me with through these things. Right. They get my mind right and then push me in ways. And then once you get it done, okay, it's not over now. You got to reinforce it over and over. But once you really make it a focus point and it's something of a priority to you, it's very easy. It's like riding a bike. You start doing it. And then right. over time, it just becomes natural. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's like anything else you learn, you know, like I didn't know how to do podcasting and had no clue. I'm not a techie, but I somehow figured it out and, you know, you may sure not be did. the best, may not be the best quality video or whatever that everybody has, but it, but it works, you know? So, so how do you, how do you recommend if somebody's got a practice, let's just make up a scenario. Somebody's got a practice, they're an owner they feel like they don't have a, a culture, like they're struggling. How do you start? Do you start with the people that are there and do it like as a team? Or is it something you have to do as the owner or within? I would, I would always say you'd have to start with the owner because all businesses start from the top down. Mm -hmm. And I believe that the first starting point with any business is you got to understand what the, the vision is for the business. So like, what are you really wanting to get out of it? And if you don't have clarity around that, then it, you got to really sit down and really define that. And then also like sitting down and really starting to pick out of like, what are like the three things that are super important to me from a value standpoint that I want to instill and that I'd like all of my employees to instill. And then if you want to take that to the next level, I mean, there's some really great books that are out there. Like there's one that's called Traction. I think it's phenomenal. It literally walks you through that entire process of how to create a vision statement and everything else. There's people that can actually help with those things as well. Yeah. Uh, but if you can narrow down, like if, if you don't have clarity yourself as the owner, that's the first place you always need to start. Like me, me and CJ get together every quarter to do quarterly business reviews. And we get together every year in November to talk about our 
annual, like, what do we do this year? And what is our focus for next year? And we're evaluating our vision and our business. And we're doing all of these things. It stinks because we're eating up like a week of our time that we could be doing other things. But if we, if we don't do it, then it's hard to make, like, if we want to instill certain things, or if we want to focus on certain stuff, if we don't devote the energy to it, our business, our life is going to carry on as usual. And then we're not going to get the results that we're wanting to get from it. Right. It's, it's strategic planning, but you have to do it or else you don't know which direction you're going in. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Okay. Tell me what opera stands for again. I I didn't write, I wrote down opera, but I can't remember the, (laughs) I think that's genius. Well, you know, my daughter and son-in-law are opera singers, right? That's great. When you said that word, I'm like opera. I know that. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So the O stands for take ownership. Okay. P means be proactive. Okay. E is be early. Mm, Okay. R means get results. And then A means actively communicate. I love it. So like at the end of the day, it's like, if we come back and we do, we do 90 day reviews. I actually stole this from uh, Andrea Crabtree. Uh, she's someone else who works in vet med. And I, she's like, you should do 90 days. And we're like, yeah, absolutely. We're going to start doing 90 days. Yeah. And uh, we, we actually use that as the framework of our reviews. And we make our team members grade themselves on their overall over the last quarter. How well did you do with taking ownership of things? What about right. being proactive and being early and getting results and actively communicating? And then we can provide our feedback as well around it oh, because then it's like, how do we keep reinforcing that? So we make that like the centerfold <laughs> right. of everything. Yeah. So. Yeah. I love that. That's, that's fun. I love those kind of, those kind of things because it keeps you focused on what you want and it, it's easy to remember, easier to communicate within your organization when new people come on. It's Absolutely. part of your program. So before we end, is there anything that we should talk about that we didn't, that I didn't ask you that you wish I would have? One thing that people are always curious about, like if they want to work with us, I think this is something just that they're out here. Okay. Uh, I, I, if anyone has a desire or interest to want to learn more about us, make sure you go visit Florida Veterinary Advisors. You can listen to our podcast, the Smarter Vet Financial Podcast. Uh, we're up to 138 episodes as this episode right now that we're nice. recording with Julie. And mm-hmm. the other part of it, if you want to meet, we schedule a 30-minute no-cost initial consultation with you. We could talk a little bit more about what we do, um, find out a little bit more, take a thumbnail snapshot of where you currently are financially. We could talk about the process, how we can work with you. And at the end of the day, we can just decide if we want to work together or not. So if you really are interested in wanting to, to take that step, you know, you can always just reach out to us, send us an email, uh, call our phone number that we have on our website. Uh, we'd be happy to set up a call or a time with you just to talk a little bit more. Yeah. And the recommendation would be to just reach out for help, right? That's what I say to people all the time on my podcast is, you know, get some help, get whatever you're struggling with, if it's finances or if it's life, or if it's your business, get somebody to help you. And that's, that's kind of what we do, right? You have your, your financial advising. And I think that that's great. I hope, I hope people do um, listen and I hope they do reach out because I, I know from being in practice a long time that, you know, you got to watch your money. Mm -hmm. You can always do a better job, (laughs) right? You can always save more money. Is what I, think. I could always do a better job myself too. So yeah, it's human nature. <laughs> it's like anything, guy. right? Well, I yeah. really appreciate you being here. It's been loads of fun. I love, li- I love listening to all this and um, I hope 
people out there got something out of it. I think they probably did. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm glad to be here. And if I could be of any any service to anyone, if they want to talk to me anyway, either way, I hope that this has been, been helpful for everyone today. Yeah. And I'm sure uh, you and I will be together again somewhere, maybe on another podcast, right? <laughs> yep. That's it. All right. Everybody have a beautiful week. Thanks so much, Tom. This is Tom Seco. Thanks, Tom. Bye.